When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 26th of November. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. Ireland is not alone in Europe in how a fourth wave of coronavirus has caught hold and is bringing pressure to bear. Many countries in Europe are seeing rising infections and the hospitals are filling up again. The pressure, as you've just heard, is on Europeans' hospitals filling up with COVID patients. Mainly with unvaccinated patients, but also some vaccinated. The message from the European Medicines Agency is that vaccines alone will not stop this virus. There's no doubt that vaccines have reduced the impact of the virus, saving people from the burden of severe disease and from death, there's still a lot more to be done. Bad as things might be, without vaccines, it could be a whole lot worse. Let me stress that vaccines are continuing to prevent many millions of EU citizens from becoming very ill or dying. Dr. Emer Cook, the executive director of the European Medicines Agency, says that because the vaccines prevent serious illness in so many people, they allow health services to function. Yesterday, the EMA approved the use of the Pfizer vaccine for young children aged 5 to 11, but it also had this word of caution for older people who are already vaccinated. It becomes clearer and clearer that immune responses are waning over time, particularly in older and more vulnerable people. And this means... Booster doses after the second dose are needed to extend vaccine effectiveness. But... Vaccines alone are not enough as the temperatures drop in Europe. Never before has the world tried to vaccinate so many people at once. And the high volumes of rollout, of vaccine rollout, make this the largest vaccine campaign in history, which also means that we have lots of evidence on which to review and examine even very rare side effects. The European Medicines Agency says there is no doubt that vaccines are safe. They are safe for the young and they are safe for the old. Vaccines remain a key instrument against COVID-19. This means it's of the utmost importance that people get vaccinated and get their full initial course of vaccine as well as any booster doses as soon as they are recommended to do so. That's Dr. Emer Cook. Now the question is, will vaccines work as this virus continues to mutate or will they be as effective? And is the new variant B11529, which is being reported in South Africa, the greatest challenge we've faced yet? The British government has already moved to suspend flights from South Africa and five other countries in Southern Africa. And the 
this morning, the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has indicated that she wants to activate emergency brake powers. In other words, follow suit and ban flights from those countries into Europe. Professor Anthony Staines, who's a professor, professor of health uh, emeritus in uh, the School of Nursing in DCU and spokesperson for the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group, joins us this morning. And a very good morning to you once again, Professor Staines, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. It's much appreciated. Uh, there's a lot of concern, obviously, about this new variant. What do you know about it? We, at the moment, what we know about it is that it exists, that it's spreading rapidly in some parts of South Africa. The South African government and South African scientists are doing phenomenal work to try and understand it better. It's very early days. It may, it may be, and please God it is, that this will just be a bit of a fright for everyone. But we don't, we don't know that yet. It looks like Delta looked when it first emerged. You know, this, this is something you could be concerned about. Um, there have been other variants that have appeared that have been causes of concern. Most of them disappeared without particular trace. This one may do the same. But if it, if it behaves outside South Africa, as it seems to be behaving in parts of South Africa, it could be a serious challenge. The virologists tell us that they think that the structure of the protein is sufficiently different that it might just be quite resistant to the vaccines we have at the moment. Yeah, that's scary, and isn't it? It, it mm. seems to be transmissible. Yeah, because we have vaccines against coronavirus. Uh, the vaccines we have would undoubtedly uh, be very effective against the original form of coronavirus. It's mm. clear they're less effective against this Delta variant. Uh, and uh, this new variant is another mutation of that, uh, as I understand it. And uh, the question is, will the vaccines we have now be less uh, effective to this variant than they are to the current variant, or perhaps not effective at all? Uh, is that a possibility? It's, un- it's unlikely. I mean, if you're a betting person, you'd say, we have the vaccines, the vaccines provide you with enough protection to keep you out of intensive care largely. If we didn't have vaccinations right now, our intensive care units would be flooded and there'd be hundreds of people waiting for intensive care. Now, we do, as as Emer Cook just said, mm. the vaccines have been transformational. The, the vaccines are against the original wild-type virus. They provide very useful protection against Alpha and Delta, which were the two next major variants. The betting would be that they will provide useful protection against the worst effects of this. But we can see, even with very high vaccination levels, and we've had a very successful vaccination program in Ireland. I mean, HSC deserve incredible credit for what they've done. But even at high vaccine levels, as Emer again said, vaccines will not control this virus on their own. We won't know for a while how vaccines work out with this virus. That is exactly what the South Africans are studying right now as I speak to you. But the message for all of us is we need to control coronavirus, full stop. Whether it's alpha or delta or beta or mu or nu or whatever it is, we need to control it. This is, I'm just looking at the Financial Times this morning. There's an article from the World Trade Organization head about talks to waive patents on COVID vaccines still being stuck. We are now paying the price for that. Mm. If we had allowed this va- these vaccines to be mass-produced in 
uh, India in South Africa, both of which are well capable of doing this, then very likely they would have rolled out their vaccine programs and very likely this variant would not have emerged. Now, the variant may disappear without trace and, you know, please God, it will. Hmm. That's what we all hope. That's what we all want. But if it doesn't, it is down to us. We had the capacity to roll out vaccinations. We opposed it. The European Union opposed it. Germany opposed it. The United States opposed it. Because we put the values of the shareholders of our major pharmaceutical companies ahead of the lives of our citizens and everybody else's citizens. And we're going to pay it. We could mm. pay a price for that. So this is a this mm. is a warning. And if this we don't pay the price for it, if we don't pay the price for it now, will we pay the price for it uh, later uh, down the line if we don't get people in far flung corners of the world vaccinated because this has always been the message from the World Health Organization. We can be 100% vaccinated and feel very safe, yeah. uh, but that can be a false sense of security because lo and behold, a, a new mutation of the virus will come into a, a country like that. Yes, that, that's exactly WHO's message since the vaccines became available. WHO has been very largely right about everything about this pandemic. At the beginning, they they got some things wrong because nobody really knew what was going on, including WHO. But if we'd followed their advice globally, we would be in a much better place. And their advice is very simple. Their advice is to control the virus, keep case numbers down, use lockdowns as a temporary measure to buy time to bring the virus under control. Now, we've had the lockdowns. We haven't used the time from the lockdowns, bring the virus under control. That was our choice. That was our government's choice. That was Neffet's choice. And, you know, we, you, you can see where we are now. We've had all these discussions about we, we can't afford to bring it down, it'll crash the economy. Um, the, all the economic evidence says the same thing. It says that the economic damage is done by the infections. The Hotels Federation said yesterday they've lost 90 million in bookings between now and Christmas. Mm. There's no restrictions. You can still go Mm. to a hotel, but people won't go. People are afraid. They're scared. Yeah, uh, all of the corporate corporate Christmas parties have been cancelled, according to the VFI. The hotels are seeing cancellations on top of cancellations and so on. People are too afraid to to go out and catch this disease. Uh, And whilst this fourth wave may not have been uh, of great surprise to the scientific community, there's people who have been caught up in in this wave who are flabbergasted to, to have learned that they or someone they love Uh, developed uh, the disease uh, because they were fully vaccinated. Uh, But is there a false sense of security? Are we walking around feeling that we're vaccinated and protected when in fact we're not? Uh, There was a study from Israel published in uh, the British British Medical Journal this week uh, indicating uh, that the risk of infection increases 90 days after the second dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Uh, So you've got three months uh, after your second dose uh, and uh, in terms of uh, the Janssen and Janssen uh, vaccine the uh, Janssen vaccine uh, it seems as though there's very little protection with that for very uh, for, for much time uh, the Centre for Disease Control in America is suggesting uh, that after two months after that one shot uh, you're as good as not vaccinated at all I, d- I think there is evidence that you have some level of protection against the worst effects of Covid you can get reinfected. There's no doubt about that. Mm. 
and that's bad because it's a nasty disease and because you can spread it to other people. There is reasonable evidence that if you're vaccinated, you will spread less than if you're not vaccinated, which is also good. That's, mm. that's what we want. But you can still spread. There's no doubt about that. But if you got the Janssen vaccine six months ago, last April, let's say, mm. uh, would you feel the same? Uh, would you feel that you have some level of protection? You probably have some level of protection. These things go, seldom go to zero. But I would be happier if I'd had a, another dose of something else. Mm. I would be, I, I've now, because I'm immunosuppressed, because I've had a transplant, I have, in fact, had a booster. Mm. Uh, and I do feel reassured for the moment by that. We don't know how long the protection from boosters lasts. It does seem to be quite effective, judging by the Israeli data. But even in Israel, there are still significant case numbers. And obviously, we, we don't know. We just plain don't know about this new variant, whether it, whether it will cause problems, whether it's uh, how it interacts with the vaccine. We just don't know. It, it does emphasize the point. There's a load we don't know about mm. this stuff. And what we've decided to do in Europe is to let the virus spread through our communities, essentially because we can't be bothered to do the stuff needed to bring it under control. And our imagination has not extended much beyond, let's have another lockdown. Mm. That's been the standard response. Is it humanly possible, though? Uh, You know, I, I don't know how many people have told me they do everything. Uh, and I question if that's true when you watch their behaviour. Uh, people who do everything, uh, who walk around with uh, their mask down under their nose, not covering their nose, uh, things like that. But people believe they're doing everything. It's, it's possible to try. I mean, if you try and you fail, at least you tried. Mm. And, the, and, then, not, and then there's others who don't want to do everything. People, for example, who walk around with their mask down under their nose, not covering their nose with their mask. Uh, intentionally? Well, I think that becomes a matter of social pressure. Mm. I, d- I don't think, you know, we, we don't want the mask police running around the place arresting people. Mm. I think you have to really, I, th- I think we have to give very clear messages to people. And the very clear messages are stay outdoors, mm. wear an, a good quality mask. That means an N95 mask. Mm. At the beginning of the pandemic, the message was very clear. Do not dare wear an N95 mask because we haven't enough of them. Mm. and we need them in hospitals. Now the message has changed because production has ramped up astronomically. So the the message now really is get rid of your cloth mask, wear an N95 mask, mm. wear masks indoors, in shops, in, crowd, in crowded settings, in public transport mm. and in schools. Mm. And, you know, Netflix have now suggested 9 to 11. Yeah. Actually, in, in many countries, children are wearing masks in primary schools from age five. And I've just seen a photograph from the 1918-1919 flu, which shows a little row of small children all wearing masks. Mm. And it does work. Mm. It's not, none of these things are perfect on their own. But if you add ventilation, air filtration, masks, aggressive public health measures, that mm. means, you know, we, we have this conversation about where are people getting infected? Are they getting infected in schools? In every country this has been studied properly, children are getting infected in schools. It hasn't been studied properly here, as we don't know, but the likelihood, based on the figures, is they are getting infected in schools. But we should know. We should know, you know, are people getting infected in pubs? Mm. Are they getting infected in restaurants? So we can target our efforts on those spaces. Um, we, we know really, we can we really, get air filters. Mm, we, we, these HEPA filters, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're... Mm. 
John Wenger tweeted a list of HEPA filters from Amazon. They're all around 150, 200, 250 euros. They're the size of a chair. You plug them in. You change the filters every three months. So it's not none of these things on their own is magic. Yeah, it's doing them all together. I'll give you an, an example. There's a lot known about hospital infection control. And there's six or seven things you have to do to have effective infection control in hospital. And you have to do all of them. Mm. If you do five of them, it doesn't work. If you do all of them, it makes a big difference. So if we do all of this stuff, and if, if we do all of this stuff and it doesn't work, then we can still do a lockdown if it's necessary, mm. if things are getting bad. And I think that was the point uh, I was making with the example of the mask, because when you get past the mask, then you've got to get to the hands washing, then you've got to get to the cough etiquette, then you've got to get to the social distance, uh, then uh, you've uh, got to uh, get to vaccination, which is a problem for people. Uh, uh, as you say, children are going to be wearing masks now, uh, and uh, there is undoubtedly going to be the potential for parents to get their children vaccinated. But again, there's going to be resistance to that, it would seem. I, my, my sense is that compulsory vaccination is probably a bad idea. That we need to say to people, you know, here are opportunities to get vaccinated. Here are the issues. Talk to me about your concerns. Let me listen to your concerns. So we take people's concerns seriously. Mm. But the evidence we have is very clear. These are, these are vaccines that have been intensively studied. These are vaccines that are safe. Okay. Okay. Well, we forget about the internet nonsense about uh, trying to kill you and depopulation and all of that stuff. Uh, What about uh, the swine flu and uh, the impacts that that had on some people? Or we've seen problems with vaccines over the years. Thalidomide is a prime example. Well, thalidomide wasn't a vaccine; it was a drug. But you know, we let's take the swine flu. We okay. Let's be very clear. We didn't know what was going to happen with the swine flu, so we brought out, and there was a serious fear that it could rip through the population with appalling consequences. We brought out a vaccine. It turned out the, vac- the, the swine flu was not as severe as we thought it was. And the vaccine, in, influenza virus affects your brain. The vaccine contains proteins shared with influenza virus, which also affect your brain. And in a very small number of people, it led to a thing called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is no fun. It's they it people get better from it. People recover. But it's not nice. Mm. We had the two thousand and nine flu here. We made some we made a serious mistake in the two thousand and nine flu, which is that we didn't look at vaccine safety properly. Which is why the HSE settled a whole series of cases a few months ago for children who got a thing called narcolepsy, which is extraordinarily rare. But does happen. Mm. It was only identified as a consequence of the vaccine about a year after it was used. But we should have stopped the vaccines earlier because the flu went away, and because the, the dose, the, there were three sources of vaccine, and one source had a lot more reactions than the other two sources. And we've learned from that. The one of the things we do in the vaccine business, we learn from mistakes. This vaccine has been given to hundreds of millions of people and has been intensively studied. And that's why we picked up the inflammation of the heart muscle in young men very early. And we studied it extensively. Young men do get it. It's very rare. 
they recover. When COVID itself causes inflammation of the heart muscle, more, much more commonly, maybe 60 times more commonly than the vaccine. And it also causes inflammation of loads of other places. So the risk of COVID is much higher than the risk of the vaccine. And the, you know, that's, yeah. that's the evidence. Yeah. That, that's what the evidence yeah. says. The, yeah. vaccines, the vaccines are safe. And if I, I talk to my public health colleagues, every one of us is vaccinated. Every one of us, our families are vaccinated. My ch- I'm vaccinated. My children are vaccinated. Mm. And I'm not doing that because I'm you know, a paid pawn to pharmaceutical companies. I'm doing that because mm. I've looked at the evidence. And I'm, you know, that, that's my job. And, and as much trust as you have in the vaccine, you know that it, it won't protect you in itself. You're also wearing your mask, you're washing your hands, you're keeping your distance, you're doing all yeah. of those things uh, because uh, no one thing will protect you from this when it's so but virulent. There's a, bu- the there's a bunch of stuff I can do. Yeah. There's a bunch of stuff only the government can do. Mm. So only the government can issue regulations about air quality in enclosed spaces. Only the government can support the use of widespread use of air filtration in schools, in pubs, in restaurants, in in other places that people gather. Only the government can bring out the serious public health measures where we're identifying cases, finding out how they got infected and finding out whom they may have spread it to, what they call breaking the chain of infection and controlling this virus. That is critical. It, 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 and it can be done. You know, the South Koreans have shown us exactly how to do it. South Korea has never had a nationwide lockdown. They've had two regional lockdowns, both of them relatively short. And they've managed to have... South Korea has, I think, something like 10, not 10 times our population, eight times our population, and has had a fraction of the number of deaths we've had. So it can be done. It can be done. Uh, and uh, it takes all of us uh, to do it, as you say. Neither we, can, us can do it uh, on our own or the state uh, in itself. Yeah. OK, we have to leave it there for the moment. But many thanks uh, to you for joining us, uh, as always, on the programme. It's uh, very, very much appreciated today. And thank you, as I say, Professor Anthony Staines. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks uh, to uh, Deirdre who says it's a disaster. Is it ever going to go away? And I think, Deirdre, you sum up the feelings of a lot of people who've been in touch with us so far. Eileen says, is this ever going to end, Michael? Now there's another new variant uh, just when our vaccines are already waning against the Delta variant. Will our vaccines even protect us against this? Do they know? Uh, No, they don't know. Not yet. uh, But they are concerned about it, which is why flights are being cancelled at uh, the moment and whether that in itself would be enough uh, to stop the virus getting to this corner of uh, the world is another day's work but highly unlikely. Tom and Dundalk says are we going to respond as swiftly as the UK to this new variant by stopping air travel from uh, the southern African region where it has been detected? It's the best way to prevent it from coming into the country. Uh, It seems as though that will be the case uh, if Ursula von der Leyen has her way, the President of uh, the European Commission and uh, flights will be stopped from coming into Europe. Somebody else says, I'm listening to your show. My question is, he said, get rid of the cloth masks. They are pretty much useless. Uh, If you're not wearing a proper medical mask, uh, 
you've maybe some protection, but very little protection from those cloth masks. Uh, but our caller says, I've lots of children. And for the children who are now nine years and older being recommended to wear the mask from next week, what am I to do? Will the schools provide the correct mask for them in primary schools on a daily basis? Um, I don't know is the simple answer to that. Uh, I'm sure we'll get... Um, more information on uh, all of that uh, in uh, the coming days. I, I haven't seen or heard offhand of masks being provided. Somebody will uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but your children will be asked to wear masks from next week. As an interesting story in a lot of the papers today of one of these anti-vaxxers who was reading far too much nonsense on the internet, it would seem uh, from what I'm reading at least uh, and uh, this idea of not having uh, laws applied to him. A man called Antonio Morerdu uh, 44 years of age hard to believe uh, that this is a grown up when we're talking about uh, he was stopped by the guards driving more than 5 kilometres from his address when uh, the restrictions were in place and he was also speeding at the same time and uh, he was in court yesterday uh, and he told the court he wished to represent himself they called him at the end of the criminal list because he wasn't wearing a mask. Uh, and uh, the guard uh, in the case said he issued him with a speeding ticket and a fixed charge penalty notice for breaching the regulations. Uh, and he told him uh, that uh, that was because he wouldn't inform him uh, of the reasons for breaking uh, the regulations. Uh, this fellow got cheeky with the guards and he was saying, I'm not telling you, it's none of your business. And then he said, I will bring you to the Supreme Court. It'll cost you money and your job, I swear to you. Uh, and he was telling the guard he could go wherever he wanted. And then he sent correspondence to the guard and to the court. Uh, the judge said that one of uh, these uh, letters said uh, it was a contract. A contract? Do you see the stuff on the internet? Oh, my God. Oh, they're just off with the fairies. Anyway, this uh, contract said any man or woman acting as an agent for the Irish state who wishes to interfere with my God-given right to travel peacefully, he or she agrees to pay me €50,000. Uh, this fellow was uh, claiming that if the charges weren't dropped against him that he'd sue the court and the state for €50,000. Uh, and the judge uh, obviously was uh, very amused but well I don't know I'd say he wasn't amused by it at all yeah. but he did uh, question are you demanding compensation uh, for your misbehaviour kind of thing and uh uh, uh, this fella stuck to his guns anyway he was fined 450 euro and that was the end of that nonsense as far as he's concerned uh, and uh, good to see the courts taking action uh, against that sort of lunacy anyway uh, thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far this morning Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to that uh, report uh, from uh, the Banking and uh, Payments Federation of Ireland yesterday and it seems to be uh, telling people under the age of 30 if you're dreaming of having your own home, well, dream on because that's all you will be able to do because it's just 25% of new mortgages to first-time buyers that were drawn down by people aged 30 or under. Paul Merriman is the CEO of Ask Paul and Pax Financial. He's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, this is a story that has really turned on its head, isn't it, in that... Uh, Back in 2004, 60% of first-time buyers were under the age of 30. 
Yes, uh, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yes, look, you're completely correct. It, it, it's it's a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a joke at this stage. You'd have to feel sorry for people that are in that age bracket. I mean, it's a massive decline in people getting on the house ladder compared to what it was pre-Celtic Tiger. Um, the other concern part about this is that the people that actually got on the property ladder, that's quite a 25% of people you spoke about before, some buyers were 30 a lot of first-time buyers are now building self-builds. So nearly 35% of mortgages drawn down are for self-builds in this country as well of first-time buyers. So when you put the two of them together, you know, you're going to say that people are living outside major cities and they might be given land by parents or you, know, you can get lucky enough to be able to build a self-build. It's easier for them to get a mortgage because the land goes towards the mortgage application. Mm. Um, so it, it, it's a sign that, number one, we haven't got the supply, which we know about. But also, this broke yesterday, sorry, was released yesterday on the back of the central bank's report as well. They said it's not going to change the mortgage rules, you know, so you still can only mm. borrow 3.5 times your yeah. salary. Uh, Actually, it's, pro- it's probably uh, not too far from the truth to say that most young people who are able to get a, a mortgage are uh, getting land off their parents or are living at home with their parents uh, because yes. it must be next to impossible to afford rent these days and yes. save for a mortgage. Yes, well, look, it's definitely next to impossible. Um, and as well as that, the supply just isn't there. That's why it's next to impossible. So you're stuck with the central bank rules of 3.5 times your salary. I mean, those rules were brought out in February 2015, and they haven't changed since. Now, house prices have dramatically increased since 2015, and we know that salaries haven't increased like anywhere near the same as house prices. Hmm. So you find yourself when you're saying the central bank, and I understand they have a really tough job to do from uh, you know an overall uh, economic point of view for the country and the got slaughtered uh, for what their lack of compliance, lack of regulation suppose before the Celtic Tiger crash. Um, but I think it's very heavy handed. I think first time buyers, you know, it's just nearly impossible to compete. There's a couple of good news out there for first time buyers if you can find a house, uh, you know, to help the buy, will give you a deposit. So you mentioned people staying at home with their parents or even renting. If you're lucky enough to do a self-build or find a new bill from a builder, uh, up to 300000 the government will give you 30 grand towards the deposit under the help the boy, which which essentially means someone renting doesn't have to save their deposit, uh, which is great in fairness. Uh, if they're living at home and they're saving, it's good for them too. But you, you, there's so much going on here. The three main issues are, number one, the supply. We don't have enough supply. And, this, and I even just seeing the statistics about people, the amount of people, 34% of the buyers, actually building their own homes. And again, we have a government that is kind of going down from the Green Party point of view, sustainability, and this is all very good, but you know, people building individual houses around the country is not really what we want to be doing. Mm. Uh, from uh, from that they can commute harder for them, uh, just from a sustainability point of view. But the main problem is supply. The second problem is the central bank guidelines or central bank rules the 3.5 times their salary. Um, you know, and, and that just makes it impossible. And then the, the we wish, we wish guidelines like that, though. Uh, sorry for interrupting you, but we wish guidelines like that were in place in 2008 because people who had very good jobs uh, and were very well paid and could afford the mortgage without uh, a blink of an eyelid uh, suddenly found themselves out of work with no prospects yeah. and couldn't make repayments. I do think, though, if you look at 2007, um, Michael, that was a once-in-a-kind-of-lifetime event with a global systematic breakdown mm. of the financial services sector. It was yeah. an absolute disaster. It's a once in a I mean, if you look at last year, we have a global pandemic. Uh, mm. People are still working. The country's doing exceptionally well. Obviously, some people won't be in that situation, but the majority of people are still earning an income, still doing really well. I mean, property prices still increased in the middle of a pandemic last year. That's how bad this is. 
So I think we can keep going back to 2007, but it was a once-in-a-lifetime event. But also, in 2007, we had banks doing absolute pure crazy stuff. It wasn't the average person that bought a house uh, at a slightly inflated price. It was people getting two or three properties, getting 100% mortgages, uh, you know, buying cars, doing extensions, and just really running the, run the muck, I suppose, yeah. in relation to the amount of borrowing they were getting. Um, so I think the central bank can be way more prudent um, than they were in 2007 without imposing these restrictions longer. It does like I think it, it's only. I mean, even houses go up for sale if there is a massive supply next year. And um, you look at anybody earning, you know, trying to get 3.5 times for a couple uh, that are on average incomes or you know, I think the average income is about 44 grand full time employment, part time is about 30. So. You know, mm. if you take a part-time and a full-time couple of So if you're bringing in maybe 50 grand a year, 80 grand a year, 3.5 times that with a mortgage is not really getting you anywhere, anywhere in the country. That's not just the major cities, but even outside. Mm. And the cost of building these new bills is getting more expensive as well because of supply uh, issues with materials, the yeah. bad issues. Brexit hasn't helped that, of course. Look, yeah. everywhere yeah. is just so... I but do but, but isn't it typical to rent across uh, Europe, uh, across the continent? Uh, I mean, that's the culture. Uh, and I wonder if, to some extent, we're seeing a cultural shift here where people are deciding uh, to have families later in life uh, and indeed to hold off on buying homes. I don't think it's a cultural shift. I think it's a program shift uh, from uh, government, the powers that be, because I think the majority of people listening to your show today would like to probably settle down quicker, get a mortgage, get a house and have kids, but they can't. <laughs> they have to, they're forced into rent. And yes, you can rent, and especially if you look at the likes of Australia, some of this is more in Australia before, uh, or even over towards Berlin and Europe, you can rent, but you also have massive protection from renting. Where here we don't have that for renters. So I think it's great. I don't think buying a house is necessary to be on it for people. I mean, the mortgage is extremely expensive. You know, the money the banks make on an interest rate is phenomenal. Uh, you know, if you take a 288,000 mortgage and you take that over, say, 30 or 28 years, the cost of borrowing is 147,000. So you're only paying the back 147,000 on top of that 280 odd grand. So, and the mortgage is very expensive. But we don't have protection for renters. They can't have tenure until they die. You know, you can't do the place up. You see people talking about, you know, being evicted very quickly or landlords selling it on. So that we just don't have the rules to be a renter country. Mm. I think if we change the rules and made it easier for people to rent and stay in the properties for longer and longer, um, that would definitely help and give renters more protection from landlords. It would 100% help. But again, okay. we haven't even done that part. So oh, right. it, it, look, it's a bit of a, it, it is a bit of a mess. You feel sorry before it's time for us. This is no change with Central Bank and, you know, the Bank of Federation's report on the under-30s. It's not a great sign. Good to talk to you, Paul. Thanks for joining us on the programme and sharing your expert opinion with us for that matter. That's Paul Merriman, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Ask Paul and Pax Financial. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, yesterday was uh, the International Day for the Elimination of uh, Violence Against uh, Women and in line with that and uh, the beginning of 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, uh, the Minister for Justice uh, announced additional funding for 18 organisations working in this field. 16% of young people believe it's easy to spot the signs of abuse Four and five believing those experiencing intimate images abuse do so in silence. This really shows how important it is to support young people of all ages to speak out, to provide safe spaces for them to do so. I know Women's Aid do great work in this area, but it's not something that any organisation can tackle alone. We need to make sure that the societal shift in thinking and understanding happens, and I referred to this earlier. 
your dedication to both supporting victims in very practical ways and in researching and recommending change to equip us to do this better going forward is making such a significant contribution to the lives of many, many people and to the development of our policies. The input we receive from Women's Aid and our other partner organisations is so important in ensuring that the changes that we make are victim-centred, that they have a real sustained impact on the front line, that they come from real lived experience. And I look forward to continuing and to building on this collaboration as we further advance our shared aim of eliminating all forms of violence against women. That's the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who was speaking at a, a virtual conference held by Women's Aid yesterday. Now, one of the 18 organisations that will benefit from what is almost an additional €5 million Euro in funding is the Dundalk Counselling Centre. It's a very interesting group, and if you've ever used uh, their professional therapeutic counselling services, you may know a little bit about them because they've been around for close to 40 years, established in 1980 initially in response to the distress that was caused by unemployment at the time and much of that was due to an influx of refugees not from Syria or Iraq but from Northern Ireland for, for that was following the introduction of internment. Let's uh, speak to the manager of uh, the Dundalk Counselling Centre, Liz McGuckian. Good morning to you, Liz, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, we can talk about gender-based oh, violence Michael. in a moment, uh, but take us back to 1982, if you will. People came from the north, uh, predominantly uh, people, uh, Catholics and Republicans, uh, who fled to the north uh, because uh, they were being terrorised there at the time and they were housed by the local authority, uh, but they needed s- some support and that's uh, what led to the establishment of uh, the Dundalk Counselling Centre. It was, yeah. Um, so I suppose that I wasn't there in 1982, but... <laughs> were you born? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I was, of course, yeah, but uh, I wasn't mm. there. But anyway... Mm. Um, yeah, there would have been at the time, there, there was huge difficulty around um, money lending and, you know, people were getting into an awful lot of trouble, um, own money, lots of personal problems, crisis in their life. So mm. it was really a service that was set up in response to all of the difficulties that people were, were under. As you say, you know, we, we're in similar circumstances. It's not that mm. much different, but it's just people from different countries as well. Yeah. Um, and your service has grown and developed over what is close to 40 years at uh, this stage. I'm sure you'll welcome the funding uh, that uh, the Minister has allocated uh, to you uh, and your colleagues, uh, and I'm sure you'll put it to good use. Uh, tell us uh, about uh, gender-based yeah. violence, and have you seen an increase in the number of people coming to you looking for support in respect of that throughout the pandemic? Well, there's an increase across the board, I would say, Michael, for people coming. I suppose I must say we're, we don't just focus on female gender-based violence. We, we work across the board, so domestic violence or male or female violence, people always need support. So it's, you know, I know that the, the figures stress that there is a, a higher rate against women but at the same time we work across the board with victims of crime so that is what our funding is for Um, and that can cover many different things you know from domestic violence rape um, sexual assault but also robbery and you know assault on the streets 
or mm. any of the kind of thing. So it, it's a very broad, because we are a broad-based service, mm. um, we can get many um, presentations of victims of crime. So, um, yeah, yeah, I suppose that is one of the points, you know. Is it, is it the impact of the crime rather than the crime itself uh, where you find... Uh, common traits in people who come to you because uh, you know if, if you get a box in the face uh, your bruises might need to heal but you'll get over it uh, but you may not get over it uh, psychologically uh, and I, I think the same could probably be said uh, about a lot of crimes whether that's uh, domestic violence or, or rape or a sexual absolutely, offense absolutely yeah, yeah because you're dealing a lot with historical aspects of it you know the crime has happened something has happened to this person and it's really the aftermath of how do I go back to my life with this as part of my journey, you know. So we need to support people to move forward. So it's helping them really emotionally and psychologically to heal from their experience. So yeah, it can be, you know, it can be long term work and some people work really quick. It can be a very specific thing. Or it can be long um, historical aspects to it that takes, you know, a lot longer to get that person back on track, you know. So Mm. very different presentations. And it does come back to the individual. And that's what our service is really valued because we work to the person's needs. It's a journey, is it? Uh, And some journeys are are shorter than others. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, uh, and um, when people come to you, uh, do you find, or I- I- is there a, a, a typical sort of scenario? Uh, do you find that people come to you immediately after something has happened, or does a, a period of time tend uh, to come in between where they say, "God, I didn't think uh, yeah. would be hanging over me like this," uh, and I, I, I've come to the conclusion that I, I do need some help to come through it. Yeah, I mean, look at it. It's, it's again, it's back to the individual. It's what's happened to them and what the circumstances are. Um, every kind of victim has a different presentation. So some people, it might be an incident that has happened and they say, OK, I need to just deal with this. I need to sort this out straight away. And they act on it. Other people might try and support themselves or try and work through it and then you know down the line they might have some sort of flashback and memory or something happens and they go oh my god Mm. I didn't think that was troubling me and then they might act so it can be it can be straight away it can be delayed or you know definitely a lot of them we see would be historical possibly and come in but then because we are such a broad base, it's back to that everybody is so different and their needs are very different. Mm. You work with men and women, you said. Uh, do you, we do, do, yeah. Do you find women are more inclined to, to uh, look for counselling than men are? Yeah, well, when we do our stats at the end of the year, Michael, we probably have maybe, it might be a 57%, you know, 60 40% female males but like in our cohort of therapists you know that are trained to a very high standard we would have um, quite a substantial amount of male therapists so we have female and male therapists 
in our organisation. So, yeah, you know, I think men are opening up more and I think they should because uh, to, to just get that support. So we do, we have about maybe a 60-40 um, divide between genders. That's Very good. Yeah. To look at it in that way. Um and you deal with all problems, as you said, whether it's uh, domestic abuse or anything else that's playing on somebody's mind. Yeah, so we are funded, like we get a small portion of funding from victims of crime and it's, it, this extra 10000 is actually very welcome. Hmm. Um, I have been told that the possibility of this being kept and we will get this every year if we apply for it. Um, so that's good because we, we do, you know, our funding applications are on a yearly basis. So we can only plan year to year. But in general, we are about 50% government funded. Mm. Um, Which is a a great endorsement, I take it, of what you do, because I think one reason people are reluctant to seek out counsellors is uh, that uh, they don't know if anybody uh, has uh, the capability of helping them through it. Uh, They don't know what their background is or or if they're any use, to put it very simply, uh, because it's very easy to establish yourself as a counsellor in this country by just putting a, a plaque outside your door. Yeah, well, I mean, that that can happen, but, you know, the general population or the public would vote with their feet, and if they felt that they weren't getting what they needed, they would move on. So, Mm. I mean, the thing is about the centres, we, you know, because we are government-funded, we have very strict rules around who works with us, how we do that. We have Garda Vetting. Um, all our therapists are accredited or working towards accreditation mm. with the main professional bodies in Ireland. So, like, Very we nice. have a highly skilled team yeah. um, with us in Dundalk Counselling Centre. So we, we work with children um, and offer non-directive um, play therapy. So that means it's, you know, we do assessment process with the parents first to try and understand where are the difficulties and the challenges that they are facing Mm. and in collaboration with the parents we would support the young person through whatever is happening and we do have some children come as victims of crime you know where their house is Mm. more and more these days where children have maybe witnessed their their mum or their dad being being assaulted Mm. or something has happened so we you know we we have children who are, are victims yeah. of crime okay. and we have an adolescent team as well who are all trained to master's level in adolescent uh, developmental psychotherapy and we have a good strong team there and adults couples and families as well so Very we have a, a huge we're actually a small business but um we're kind of quite big in the mm. sense we service quite a large area so well we people will people will find you easily in uh, Seatown Place in Dundalk uh, and uh, you're at the end of the phone on Dundalk 042 9338 that's 9338 uh, and uh, dundalkcounsellingcentre.ie the website that's it and we have a Facebook page as well you can look on there we put up different stuff and share information so very good well 
continued success uh, in uh, the work that you do helping people, Liz, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, following uh, that additional allocation of funding uh, to the Dundalk Counselling Centre by the Minister for Justice yesterday. That's Liz McGuckian, who's the manager of uh, the Dundalk Counselling Centre. Now, as I said at the outset, all of this was uh, in... Uh, line with uh, the International Day uh, Against uh, Violence Against Women, uh, which was yesterday. And we heard uh, from the Minister, Helen McEntee, a few moments ago speaking at uh, that Women's Aid Conference. Let's hear from the President of Ireland now, Michael D. Higgins. But how can we as citizens play our part in the goal of eliminating violence against women and girls? First, we must listen to and believe survivors. The research Women's Aid is launching today identifies the need for family friends and colleagues, to come forward, take the initiative, ask others to support victims of abuse, to call out abusive behaviours and to act as active bystanders against intimate relationship abuse. We must offer and demonstrate these actions to the younger generation and learn from them too in terms of their experience. We must call for responses and services fit for purpose for survivors of gender-based violence at every level, from government to the street. We must understand what we mean by consent. We must be aware of the physical and emotional signs of abuse and learn how we can help. We must start a public conversation with citizens as to how we can increase awareness of this issue. We must take an unequivocal stand against rape culture, holding each other accountable. Finally, we must adequately fund women's organisations who support those who have suffered from such violence. Such a societal response would indeed assist in the achievement of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and specifically Goal 5 on gender equality. As to the European Union, we know that violence against women remains underreported. In Europe, only a third of women who are physically or sexually abused by their partners, contact the authorities. That is one of the reasons why high-profile international days like this are so important. May I conclude with a message to any woman who may be living in abusive circumstances to take the courage to seek help from organisations such as Women's Aid, as well as on Garda Shagona. Your doing so will help break the cycle of domestic violence by uncovering it It can be ended. Out of the darkness of such abuse can emerge a brighter future of respect, dignity, freedom and equality. That's uh, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Mead. Fergus O'Dowd uh, joins us now. We're going to talk about COVID in in a moment, but before we do, uh, let's talk about Brinestown Wood. Uh, Fergus O'Dowd, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. People will remember there was a problem, some sort of a problem between the developer and the ESB. One was blaming the other, but people weren't getting their keys to new houses. Uh, There's been some progress, I believe. There has indeed. There's been uh, discussions between the ESB Obviously, the developer, the Health and Safety Authority, and I understand that significant progress has been made. And I think that's really important that that is the case. I spoke to the auctioneer, Shane Black, yesterday, and he's confident as well that issues would be resolved to the satisfaction of everybody, particularly people um, who who want to buy and live in in that very nice estate there. So it's good news Mm. right now anyway. So let's hope it continues. Very good. That's uh, people who have uh, deposits down from... 
last March, if February, I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah February, February March, was it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah. No, they're very worried. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay, well, that's very, very good news. Uh, we're going to talk about COVID, as I say. Uh, maybe I can turn to our, our listeners uh, before I do, because there's a, a few things that have come to us. Uh, somebody uh, who recently had COVID uh, and wanted to cancel their booster didn't know how to do that. Uh, we actually have a, an answer from the HSE uh, in relation to that, because there's apparently a lot of no-shows, and they were wondering if that was the reason. Uh, somebody else saying, can you ask the TDs when they're on about air filters? Uh, Professor Anthony Staines were saying that they should be mandatory in schools, hotels and pubs and anywhere people gather, but they're not. Uh, find out about that or what TDs think about it. And Tom uh, was texting as well, saying, remember, that sort of lunacy is walking the street, which is very worrying. Uh, this is referring to a, a man uh, who was trying to sue the court for €50,000. I don't know if you read that in the papers yourself. I did, I did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he thought he could sue the court, uh, but he ended up being fined €450, Euro, uh, despite the contract that he thought he had. <laughs> this thing about contracts and the Constitution and all this sort of uh, mad stuff uh, would get in your nerves. Uh, but uh, this ties in, I think, with what you were saying about the anti-vaxxers yesterday. I don't think you were talking about people uh, who can't get vaccinated because you, you did in your doll. Uh, speech recognise that there are people who can't there get are. vaccinated, but there are people who won't get vaccinated. And you were saying, uh, well, stop them from going into gyms and chippers and hairdressers and so on. Extend the COVID certs. Yes, I think the main thing is to protect everybody. And obviously, if people wish not to be vaccinated, that is their absolute entitlement. And nobody is interfering with that, that entitlement if they wish to choose it. The difficulty is that obviously COVID and we have a new variation new variant coming from South Africa, uh, rising there. And that's why all the planes between Europe and Britain and South Africa are going to be stopped, hopefully today, mm. because of the dangerous situation. So, look, we don't want the situation to get out of control. And my point is that, you know, obviously for essential services and so on, people, if they wear a mask, that's fine. Whether they're vaccinated or not, they keep their social distance and so on. But if you're going to spend a significant amount of time, say, in the hairdressers or barbers or, you know, or a gymnasium, I, I actually think that the COVID search should be extended because you're likely to be exposed. If there is COVID in the air mm. in those locations, you're likely, you know, you're more likely to be exposed to it the longer you're going to be there. And I think we've got to protect people as much as possible. You know, is is there a contract there, though, that you'd be worried about? Because I, I think that's uh, one of uh, the reasons uh, the government didn't extend it. They may extend it now, by all uh, accounts, uh, yeah. to such areas. Uh, but if you're the member of a gym, you have a, a real contract, not one of these uh, imaginary ones that you read about on the internet. Uh, but there's, uh, you, you, what about your membership? Should the gym refund you your membership fee? Well, I don't know the answer to that one, Michael, but I, I think that I do know that 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 the gym that I was a member of, although I must honestly not a very active member, it actually it actually ceased taking uh, money from me for a period of months because they weren't open. Uh, so I don't know what all gyms are doing, but if they are open, obviously if people are going to be breathing more strenuously, uh, you know the likelihood is that if there is a vac- if there is if it is in the air, you know you're likely to spread it. You're more likely to get it than in the outdoors, obviously. So, I mean, it, I think it's just common sense, really. Um, and I know people people get angry when they hear people like me saying that. And we got a lot of calls, actually, mm. to our office, some of them very abusive because of what I said. Well, I, I, think, I, I, I think it's only a small amount of yeah. very 
um, vocal we got, we people. Got a lot, ah, yeah, but they're they're loudmouths. You know, it's a yeah, small yeah, group. Of, I, I don't know. They've got a chip on their shoulder. They think the whole world's that. against them. Yep. They actually they actually think Bill Gates is trying to kill them or some god course, knows yeah. whatever. Yeah. Well, mm. I think the main mm. point is this: that common sense prevails. Ninety-one out of a hundred people in Ireland, yeah. three out of every hundred adults over fifteen mm. are vaccinated. And the problem is that of the seven percent that aren't vaccinated. Um, 65% of all the admissions to ICU last week, 65% mm. of them were unvaccinated. So if you're not vaccinated and if you do get ill, mm. you're at a higher risk, obviously, because because you, you, you have no defence against it. You yeah. Know? yeah. And what about the school? Somebody actually uh, didn't mention it earlier on, but somebody else was on uh, about uh, having to wear masks now from uh, third class upwards, uh, nine-year-olds, uh, and the masks are expensive. Anthony Staines uh, talking to us uh, this morning about how useless the cloth masks are and that you should be wearing a, a surgical mask. Medical grade, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, should they be supplied by the schools? And that question about the HEPA... Should. Uh, and should. And the HEPA... Sorry, just to tie it in with the HEPA filters question as well. Yeah, well, I, I think, first of all, that a lot of schools that are modern, they have plenty of air circulation, uh, but older, older buildings don't have. So depending on the year of your school, you have good or poor circulation, obviously. And I know CO2 monitors can tell you exactly, you know, the amount of oxygen in the room or CO2 and the likelihood of, of, of you know, respiration rate you know, of, 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 of the COVID if it's there. Um, that the alarm goes off and, and, and you open the windows or doors or whatever. I do think that everybody should be supplied with free masks in schools, yes. And it should be of the appropriate grade. I have no issue with that at all. The difficulty is mm. it's going to be very hard for some children, uh, particularly the younger children, to wear the mask all day. And, and that will arise, obviously. That will cause problems, there's no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, if it's in the interest of the child and their health that you do that, I think notwithstanding the difficulties, I think it's worth doing. And if that's the medical advice, which it appears it will be today, I think we we should go ahead with it now, if that's going to protect children. Okay. Um, yeah, and that's my own view. Anyway. Okay, and just uh, on uh, that uh, question of not wanting to go for a booster for whatever reason, if you get your appointment, the HSE say, if you don't want your appointment, press reject, reply with reject to your appointment text message. Uh, and if for some other reason, uh, perhaps after you've accepted your appointment, you want to cancel it, you can do it through their website uh, because uh, there's a lot of no-shows and this could be feeding into it. Uh, so please do cancel your appointment if you're not going. Uh, and it's through the HSE website. So that's hse.ie. And then you go services, booster, inquiries and cancel uh, but it is there for you uh, and if you do want to do that and uh, you want us uh, to talk you through it uh, give us a, a call but just to mention that uh, you're speaking to us uh, of course from your hometown in Drogheda which is not just uh, the worst part of the country for the virus uh, but one of the worst in Europe at, at this stage uh, do you think that has anything to do with the Janssen vaccine? I don't know I can't answer that but what I can say that it's, it's very very high and obviously everybody has to be very careful more careful, careful than normal. I do note a lot more people wearing masks even out and about at the moment downtown. I think the key thing is that, you know, if you're feeling unwell, if you've any of the symptoms, to isolate uh, from from everybody and, and get in touch with your doctor or make your appointment. The problem is that people haven't been able to get appointments, particularly for this last week or so. And it's, I'm very unhappy with that situation. I've made, uh, obviously, repeated calls 
uh, to both the Minister and to the HSE. And I understand that the request from the Director of Public Health in the region is that there will be a pop-up clinic here in Drada. Uh, but that, that isn't the case as I speak. But I am pressing and will continue to. I think it's ridiculous mm. that the biggest town in Ireland doesn't have that facility. Well, we heard the five TDs, yourself included, for the constituency, make the point in uh, the Dáil on Wednesday. The Minister uh, said that he'd uh, address the concerns uh, in his wrap-up response, and he never did. Well, I, I, I know, and that's, that, that still worries me. I mean, the question is, you know, why should you have to go in the biggest town in Ireland to go anywhere? And, I mean, people can't go in County Loud when there are no appointments, so they're looking. There was none in County Mead there either during the week. So where do they go? And they create stress, obviously, with strain. And if a lot of young children are sick, you know, it increases the worry and the stress and yeah. how are you going to get from what A to B. What do you do if you don't have the internet? Yeah, well, but yes, well, most people, yeah. most people, thankfully, yeah. have access, but not everybody. I know. But the dif- the difficulty and, and why, why is it only two days? I mean, why can't you go on today and get an appointment for next Friday if that's the next okay, available well, one appointment? One of the problems is that the staff they did have in the past, mm. you know, a lot of them would have been healthcare staff that would have been put into those facilities. But the problem is there's an awful lot of health people, healthcare people are sick as well. Mm. You've over 5,000 people out ill at the moment. It's mad, yeah. Because of COVID, so mm. it's really, really serious. Yeah. That's right. And we, we, we have to be patient to some degree and appreciate uh, the pressure. I mean, one in 25 people in this country was tested last week. It really is an incredible statistic. Uh, and it goes to show uh, the pressure that it is on the health service. And if you have symptoms, just stay home. <laughs> and yes, you can give out that you can't get an appointment, but stay home nonetheless. Okay, Fergus, we leave it there for the moment. Thank, Thank you. you very much indeed. Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now from uh, the COVID-19 pandemic to the pandemic of drugs, particularly in this region, and indeed uh, the plan to solve that problem and bring about an end uh, to the pandemic uh, through the recommendations in the Giran report. In July, Minister Humphreys obtained government approval for an implementation plan uh, for the report. The government also committed to a special focus on Drogheda, including departments and state agencies prioritising necessary funding applications for projects related to the Drogheda implementation plan. And I know that specifically for the groups is extremely important, that where there is a request or an ask, the departments prioritise it and government has signed off and agreed to that. The implementation plan identifies the relevant stakeholders for each recommendation and outlines the next step for engagement and delivery. The plan will be a living, breathing document. It will be reviewed by my department each quarter with progress reports twice yearly. This will facilitate ongoing engagement and consultation. My own department has completed the first internal quarterly review and the first progress report will be produced within the first six months of the implementation plan. So that's in Q1 of 2022. There have already been some very positive steps in the plan. The Department of Education have provided additional support for three schools identified in the in the report. And my own department has provided further funding to the Red Door project to ensure the continued provision of other important services. We've also committed funding to the Moneymore Consortium to support their planning um, and also to the Moneymore Childcare Centre to ensure continuation of services. We have additional funding as well being allocated. That's the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. She was responding to Sinn Féin's Rory O'Muraku and uh, said 
that uh, there would also be funding available for FASN, the Family Addiction and Services Network. Obviously we, we've spoken about this before and my department's engaging directly with the HSE so we will make sure that the support that they need, be it through funding from my own department but also from the HSE is provided to them uh, in the same way that support is being provided to other organisations, not just from my own Department of Justice which often specifically focuses on victims of crime but that the other type of funding is provided as well. Um, the structure itself, uh, the first meeting of the implementation board has happened. Uh, I subsequently met with them uh, and yourselves and uh, Deputy Fergus of Dej, Ed Nash, Imelda Henry and others um, and have since met with the community groups who very clearly said that they uh, wanted to ensure that there was a community representative on that board. So following the appointment of the coordinator, which is happening this week, she will then meet with the community groups uh, where they will then identify themselves representatives to go on that. And of course, as we know, the subgroups are already being rolled out. So there's many layers community at every stage are involved in those layers. Minister McEntee, let's speak uh, to Rory Murakou and a very good morning to you and thank you for joining morning, us on the programme. Uh, some progress, uh, there's no doubt uh, and very welcome news that commitment given to you there by the Minister that there will be funding made available to FASN. If not through the HSE, it'll come from her department. Yeah, and like she said, in fairness to the Minister, we've had a fair amount at this stage of engagement in in relation to the Family Addiction Support Network in particular, and, and the need, obviously, for across-the-board funding that would provide viability for an awful lot of these organisations, obviously the Red Door included. And what she has done is she's operating as lead, while the funding mightn't necessarily come from the DOJ, she is saying that she's engaging with the HSC and, and with her own department and that she will come up with basically a plan, a roadmap that will ensure that the likes of the Family Addiction Support Network, a service that's not only used by the community but also by the Garda Síochána, uh, who were involved in a in a serious fundraiser for it in the last while, which just shows how serious the issue of funding is, um, but that they will come up with, as I say, a roadmap and funding. And it needs to be multi-annual funding that m- maintains viability. There is uh, two positions at this point in time that are being tendered in relation to family support services. But obviously a number of organisations will have... Um, will tender for it and, and there, there would be very specific needs and requirements in relation to, to the job spec. And that probably fits into some of the issues that an awful lot of these organisations would say that the, the, the issue they have at the minute, it's become a lot more difficult to deal with state services and in an awful lot of cases they have a feeling that state services want to deal with the bigger state organisations, not necessarily the organisations that have come from the ground up. The organisations that have been built on the basis of need and the lack of services that actually exist, and um, you know, within the state itself, mm. you know, it, it, these are generally where people have come together to provide a service that the state was failing to provide. Providing addiction services is one thing; uh, arresting youngfellas in the main uh, and locking them up is another thing Uh, but there's a lot more to the drugs problem and a lot more in terms of prevention and I suppose uh, that is uh, the thrust of what is hoped to be achieved through the Giran report and something that we've uh, discussed many times over. If I remember correctly there's 72 recommendations that Giran made uh, which it's hoped will be implemented Uh, and I think you're pretty enthusiastic at the idea now that a coordinator has finally been employed. Yeah, 
an awful lot of the difficulties, you know, where you get a report or you get a review, you get a report and you have a huge time delay. And in an awful lot of cases, then you have uh, implementation boards that are set up without teeth. But in this stage, like, as I say, we have the minister taking direct responsibility in relation to this. I, I know that you have an awful lot of senior people um the likes of Christy Mangan sitting themselves on uh, on the Drogheda Implementation Board. Finally, we have a coordinator in place and we can get down to the work that needs done. And that's following two on the recommendations. It's also engaging with the groups, with the organisations, with the community from a point of view of let's look at what the wants and needs because even if we fund all the organisations that are there and even with the gaps that they have there are huge gaps if we're talking about the work that needs to be done in relation to family supports community supports diversion programmes engaging with all the schools and everything else from a point of view of the amount of people that we because we need to put the effort into prevention you know, we need to put the effort into diverting people away from obviously from drugs, gangs, from becoming involved in these from a point of view of being the victim or ending up in a situation which can happen to an awful lot of young fellas. They, they, they get attracted to this lifestyle. They don't realize, you know, that the fun ends fairly quickly and then they become responsible sometimes for doing absolutely terrible things. Mm, yeah, yeah, and I think we all know what that means. Uh, uh, when does that start? Well, look, um, my engagement is straight away. The first things mm. I need to do is make sure that the organisations that do exist... And no, I mean, at, at what stage in life does it start? I mean, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, let, yeah. Let, let, let's mm. be absolutely clear, and apologies there for my yeah, misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not the first time I've got anything wrong on this show. Um, <laughs> uh, look, I, I would say that the best support services that have been put in place and I know in Dundalk there was a period of time that you had family support uh, that that operated basically from kids being very young. I know in Darndale and other places Mm. they've operated cases of literally engagement with families and, and, uh, and particularly with pregnant women as I say, before the child is born mm. and then that you have, it's, it's, it's a very long term and almost lifelong engagement with families that need supports, mm. that want supports and that you've had huge success in relation to the outcomes when them kids become 18. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you, 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 I, I've seen cases and again, it's a percentages game. It doesn't always work, but yeah. you've broken the issues caused by multi-generational unemployment, families that may have suffered particular trauma and have, an, have particular sets of difficulties. Mm. And you remove them from that danger element, from, you know, obviously their vulnerability is, you know, leaves them open to become involved in some of these actions and all the rest. But now, there is a wider action. I accept, yeah, we can waste our time putting young people, putting addicts, through uh, mm. through prison, not giving them the addiction services that are required to break to break the chain, basically putting them in jail. Even in cases like I know of cases of people have gone to let's say Oberstown, it was the only means they had to um, to get addiction services was to rack up a whole pile of charges. They got it, but the problem is when they were released, they were released back into the same chaos. So the you know what I mean? The, the, the circle was maintained and they continued to um, to be addicts. And No, they returned to addiction, they returned to the chaos and they returned to the criminal justice system. We need to break all of that, but we also need and the gla- to... And the glamour, the glamour of gangsterism, 
or, or a being of gangster. I don't know if there's a word called gangsterism, but uh, I'm sure you know what I mean. But uh, I mean, you're competing with YouTube. You're competing with uh, what kids are, are watching, uh, whether it's on YouTube or from Hollywood uh, or on RTE, uh, some of uh, the crime dramas, uh, or reading in the papers uh, and how we glorify some of these gangsters. That's all right. And you also have to say, see if a kid doesn't see that they have a huge amount of options and they see this also as a viable option. Oh, yeah. Because we know, particularly in working class areas, the problem has been that you have had drug dealers that have had a hell of a long road that have been there for 10, 15 years. And now within the last number of years, I've seen a huge amount of... uh, effort and concentration from the Gardaí and that's Gardaí with a greater level of resources and all the rest of it and, and, and it, it may all be imperfect but I've seen uh, I've seen people who were who are who have now have seri- are facing serious charges and have gone through the court on serious charges the problem is it all takes too long even at the point in time that the Gardaí do that our courts are backlogged and in an awful lot of cases really serious criminals will get Bail, particularly if you're not, if there isn't a charge relating to violence against them, and even where there is, because the length of time you're talking about, even if they're uh, on remand following six months or a year later, they're back out. Now, I have also seen where the guards have fought those cases and have, have even ensured that even if people are released, that they're released with really strict conditions in relation to where they can go and where they can't go. And we do need more of that. As I say, there are wider issues. I've said to you many times, we really need to get serious about this. And if serious means remove this question from Leinster House, put it into a citizens' assembly, let's have a real conversation on what the possibilities are. Let's do due diligence in relation to what's best practice across Europe. And like I said before, whatever we do needs to be done not only on an all-Ireland basis, but we need to engage also with our European partners because I, I think Ireland is, is very, very small in relation mm-hmm. to this and we probably need a wider international answer. But we can't continue with what we're doing. Yep. Look, like, no doubt we will. No, no doubt we will. Uh, uh, we will, at least for a period of time. It's say for 20 years, 30 years, I imagine yeah. we'll continue. Uh, and then we'll realise, well, we've been at it for what? Since 1960, 1970. So uh, at that stage, uh, we'll probably say, look, we're flogging a dead horse here and uh, look at uh, ways uh, of dealing with this so that we don't criminalise people and that we can look after them if they're going to choose a certain path. Well, look, we have to realise. I've often said when people talk about, like, well, how many people are engaged in all this? Mm. And and you say a a huge amount. The money wouldn't be in it if it was only... The, the cohort of addicts that we know and see, you know, standing mm. outside courthouses at the minute outside my, my own office mm. during and, the week. And curiosity and is natural. I mean, in the same way, young people are curious and they want to drink. Um, they might take a, a smoke or a line or whatever. Uh, curiosity is natural, particularly in young people. That's it. And, and they fall into particular cohorts mm. and, and some will be worse than others. And there's kids that will go through all of this and, and will, inaga- will try something here and there and, you know, maybe mm. do it a couple of times and will be OK. Mm. But there oh, and there's plenty of them who'll do it every week uh, for yeah. years and they'll be OK. And, yeah. And mm. then there's those where no more than 
we, we haven't a great relationship with alcohol and there's a mm. huge amount of people in this country that can't cope with alcohol so it's obvious that they can't cope with these other substances and that's not to take away with the individual dangers that exist in these drugs and obviously the mm. best case scenario is not to touch any of it but we, we have to live in the world where people are engaging it to a, to a huge level so we need harm reduction we need to mm. ensure when people do suffer from addiction that there are the protections there are the ways yeah. of uh, removing them from, as I say, particularly S- the criminal... Similar to the question that they faced in the 1920s in America with prohibition. Exactly. Prohibition sounded like a really great idea until you actually tried to implement it. And what you did was, that's what led to the rise of organised crime and the mafia in America. That's what gave them serious money and serious power. So it was obviously absolutely uh, flawed. And, and my the, the biggest danger that we deal with, it's not only the drug dealing, it's like I said, it's the violence, it's the drug debt intimidation. And there's a huge amount of families that would have always thought that they were insulated and protected from this. But in the last while, their kid gets into difficulties, mm. he racks up a debt, and the knock comes on the door, and the knock is followed by the petrol bomb. Okay. And the, Hopefully, uh, the uh, actions that are, are, are starting now uh, will impact uh, to some degree. Uh, but thanks for joining us, as always. It's, yeah, M- Michael, it's about setting a template in place that we can operate across, uh, as I say, across this state in, in, in every town, you know, in every city and even beyond that because it's a huge issue but we do have to get to the wider issue of the drug pandemic so that citizens assembly needs to happen as soon as possible and that onus is on government thank you very much indeed Rory Murakou Sinn Féin TD for Loud and Eastmeath Michael Reed on LMFM. Joanne was in touch with us this morning. She says it's a good move uh, to have children wear masks in school. They're already doing it on the school buses, but it'll be hard on them to do it all day. And many of them are very cold in school at the moment because of the way the windows are being kept open and the way the temperatures are dropping for that matter. Thank you indeed, Joanne, for your call. Uh, Carmel has been in touch with us and she got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine back in April and she's really confused now. Did it ever work? She asks, can you clarify this, Michael? Well, there's a lot of worry about uh, how uh, the uh, Janssen vaccine is no longer effective. Uh, In Europe, they're saying after three months uh, and in America, they're saying after two months, which would mean that by June, uh, you're pretty much not vaccinated. I think the advice is if you got the Janssen vaccine, as many people did, Carmel, in April, act now as though you're not vaccinated. Vaccines save lives, but they do not fully prevent transmission. Data suggests that before the arrival of the Delta variant, vaccines reduce transmission by about 60%. With Delta, that has dropped to about 40%. If you're vaccinated, you have a much lower risk of severe disease and death. But you're still at risk of being infected and of infecting others. We cannot say this clearly enough. Even if you're vaccinated, continue to take precautions to prevent becoming infected yourself and to infecting someone else who could die. That means wearing a mask, maintaining distance, avoiding crowds and meeting others outside if you can, or in a well-ventilated space inside. 
And we continue to call on all governments to implement a comprehensive and tailored approach of public health and social measures to prevent transmission, take the pressure off health systems and save lives. Someday, hopefully, we won't have to talk about COVID. Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization gets the final word today. Hope you have a lovely weekend. Stay safe and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.